What is essential for us to know is not what God has ordained for the future, but what he has revealed to us, his covenant people, for our obedience today. The distinction between essential and non-essential is very much on our minds these days in the midst of this pandemic. Government officials across our country have deemed certain businesses and sectors of our society essential to the well-being of our communities. These essential businesses and services like those in health care, first responders, public health, grocery stores, pharmacies, and many more are deemed essential. We need to be, have access to them in our day. But in deeming some businesses and sectors essential means others are deemed non-essential. And they've had to close in order to be a part of the plan to mitigate the spread of the virus. In one community, a popular family-owned Christian bookstore was deemed by those local authorities as non-essential. And as they should, they submitted to the authorities and they closed up their shop. Some of their customers, understanding why this business had to close for the common good, wanted to encourage the owners. And they sent messages to this couple that owned this Christian bookstore saying, though in this immediate crisis your business has been deemed non-essential, I want you to know how essential the bookstore is to my spiritual well-being. During this immediate crisis, certain things are deemed essential, others non-essential, and it's for our well-being as a society. But given that, let us not neglect what God has deemed the ultimate, the overall essential for our body and for our soul. Deuteronomy 29 was our key verse last Sunday and is so today. It tells us what God deems essential for his covenant people, for the well-being of both their body and their soul. God's essential is his revealed will for his people's obedience. And as we reflect on Deuteronomy 29, 29, we remember from last week, we focused on the first will that Moses speaks about, God's sovereign will, his secret will, his will of decrees, that which we can never know. But this second will, which will be our focus today, is God's revealed will, what he not only wants us to know, but what we must know that we will be obedient to him. What we must know for the well-being of both our body and our soul, for the well-being of the whole person. And so today we will look at this verse, but we'll also look at the context of this verse. Before verse 29, there are 28 verses that set before us the context. And as we work through this 29th chapter of Deuteronomy, 
we'll focus on verses 1 through 15, and there we'll see the heart of commitment. And as we look to verses 16 through 28, we will find Moses teaching about the root of idolatry. And then we'll conclude by returning to verse 29 as we consider the purpose for God's special revelation in the lives of his people. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is powerful. We thank you that your word is authoritative. We thank you that you have revealed everything that we need for life and godliness, that you have told us what it means to please you. You not only have revealed your will, but you've given us heart understanding that we might not only know what your will is, but love to do it. And so remind us of these things today. Encourage our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. First, true commitment flows out of a heart of understanding, a heart of understanding that is given by God. If you would turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 29, I'll read for us verses 1 through 15. Now God's word for God's people. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord God commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread and you have not drunk wine or strong drink that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Therefore, keep the word of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourners who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today. But he may establish you today as his people that he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, it is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. Thus far, the word of God. So in this passage we just read, Moses in verse 1 begins his third sermon. It's a series of sermons, speeches that Moses gives. In Deuteronomy, the chapter begins with the new generation as we've been studying throughout Deuteronomy. They are in Moab, poised to 
to cross the Jordan River to take possession of that land which God had promised to their forefathers and to them. And here Moses, in chapter 29, exhorts them to commit to the words of the covenant, the covenant words that Moses has spoken and preached throughout the book of Deuteronomy, those words in Deuteronomy that are a restatement of the covenant given at Mount Sinai through Moses to that original generation. And as Moses encourages them to make this commitment, he reminds them of God's history in their relationship. In verse 2, even though Moses was addressing the next generation, the new generation, he speaks as if they had firsthand knowledge of all that God did in the previous generation, and in a sense they did. What God did in that in Egypt as the first as that original generation was there as God redeemed them from bondage and captivity as he brought them through the judgmental waters of the Red Sea to the foot of Mount Sinai and there established the covenant with them verse 3 and then in verse 5 he reminds them that as the company of Israel journeyed for over 40 years from Mount Sinai, Horeb, all the way eventually making it to Moab, where they are in the present, that their clothes did not wear out, their sandals did not wear out, God provided for them. In verse 6, he speaks about the fact that they did not have to bake bread or ferment wine. Why? Because God provided manna for them. God provided water from the rock for them. When they finally reach Moab, as they are ready to go in and take possession of the land, God fought for them, defeating these two kings and these two lands, and giving that land to two and a half tribes as their inheritance. God was faithful to them. And in the midst of, of Moses recounting this history, he is pointing out how much the people had to rely on God and how faithful God was to provide for them at every step of the way. And, and such a faithful God, such an incredible history of provision and reliance demands a response of commitment and loyalty. And as we look at verses 10 through 15, we see Moses calling the people to a solemn commitment to keep the covenant, to obey all the stipulations that Moses had given them thus far throughout Deuteronomy. And as they obeyed, they would enjoy the blessings that are detailed in chapters 27 and 28. But as they commit to the covenant to obey and enjoy, they also commit to what happens if they disobey and they submit to the sanctions of the covenant, the curses that accompany disobedience that are also laid out very clearly in chapters 27 and 28. So it was a full commitment, recommitment to the covenant. And this covenant commitment was not only for that generation, but for whoever is not with us today, a reference to the future generations of Israelites. The commitment was a renewal, not 
initiating a relationship, but a renewal of the relationship. And the result was for the people to recommit to being God's covenant people. And in verse 13, that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. But we need to ask a question. We skipped one verse, didn't we? Verse 4. And we need to ask this question. What is the key to true commitment? Is it the veracity of the person making the commitment? And we would say no. Moses says no. The key to true commitment is God giving that person a heart of understanding. Look to verse 4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. You may remember God commissioning the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And after the first seven verses of Isaiah, that beautiful picture and statement of the gospel of grace, Isaiah resolves that God's faithfulness in dealing with his sin demanded a response of loyalty and commitment. And Isaiah says, here am I, God, send me. And God said, okay, Isaiah, I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you to a people who have ears, yet they're not going to pay attention to one thing you say. Who have eyes, but they can't see the truth if it slapped them in the face who have hard hearts. And likewise, fast forward to Romans chapter 11. There the apostle Paul describes Israel's rejection of the gospel as a function of spiritual blindness and deafness and hardness of heart. Just like those people in Isaiah 6, just like some of the Israelites that Moses references in Deuteronomy chapter 29. In the midst of an historical account of God's history with his people, as, the, as that first generation were saying, yeah, Moses, I physically heard about that from mom and dad, and I physically saw this, Moses tells them that true understanding is not physical sight, physical hearing, but a heart of understanding. True understanding comes from God. It's by grace. For he gives you the ability to spiritually see here. He gives you a heart that loves him and that has the capacity to understand his will. A heart of understanding given by God. That's what enables true commitment. That's what enables a response to this God who provides and who calls a people to be in covenant with him. Another way to say it is simply this. In order for us to obey the stipulations of the covenant, it depends on God giving us a heart of understanding, a work of grace in our hearts. Spiritual eyes, spiritual ears, a new heart. Circumcision of the heart is a central theme 
in the book of Deuteronomy. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16, there we're told, the Israelites were told to circumcise the foreskin of their hearts. Next week, we'll look at a passage in chapter 30, verse 6, in the context of forgiveness and restoration, where again, Moses speaks about the circumcision of the heart, God doing a work of grace in a person's heart, enabling the right response. And that's a theme in the book of Deuteronomy. That same theme was very clearly echoed in Romans 6 that Jeff read earlier. God's grace in giving us a new life by uniting us to Christ Jesus, by saving us, and in so doing, freeing us from bondage to sin. Paul declares in verse 11 of Romans 6, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And the result of that union with Christ, that death to sin that God does, that new life in Christ that God brings, is this, verses 12 through 13, the response of a heart of understanding. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and are members to God as instruments for righteousness. A heart of understanding is the source for a right response to God's grace. What is essential for us to know is not what God has decreed for the future, but what He has revealed to us as covenant people today that we would obey Him. But there's a second aspect to the context of Deuteronomy 29:29, the heart of commitment, but also the root of idolatry. And not surprisingly, the root of idolatry is in that heart. In order for us to truly commit to obey God, He must first change our hearts. And the reason is given in verses 16 through 28. When one relies on the natural fallen state of the heart, a heart that is rooted and absorbs and spreads the poison of idolatry, that individual will either outright reject God or will play the role of the hypocrite, outwardly saying, yes, Jesus, but inwardly remaining stubborn, disobedient, and rebellious. So turn with me to the verse 16, actually verse 18 of Deuteronomy. This root of idolatry is covered in the broader passage, verses 16 through 28. I'll just read a couple of verses for us. I'd encourage you to read the entire passage later today. But starting with verse 18, Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, 
though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will not blot out his name from under heaven. Commitment to God is a matter of the heart. And Moses warns the people about committing to God outwardly. Words are easy to utter. He warns the people about uttering those words of committal, but yet inwardly, the state of their heart is as one turned from God, rebelling against God, totally absorbed with self. And Moses warned them about the infectious nature of idolatry in the heart. So I use a, a systemic pest control to take care of my crepe myrtles that have a tendency to get this black scale disease that has just ra- one year just ravaged West Little Rock. And so what you do is you get the concentrated solution, you mix it in the appropriate amount of water, and then you just simply pour it around the base of the crepe myrtle plant, it soaks into the ground, the roots take up the pesticide, and it literally spreads throughout the entire plant. And in case you have this same problem, I would highly recommend using a systemic pest control because I've had great results with treating the disease bark scale on crepe myrtles. Moses described idolatry like that, a poison that gets into the root of the heart and spreads throughout, producing the bitter fruit, producing the sinful acts of idolatry. In Proverbs, we're told that the heart is the wellspring of living. This bears it out. What is in the well comes up in the bucket. And what is in the heart will eventually come out in behavior. In this case, the poison of idolatry spreading, resulting in the bitter fruit of idolatry. What a descriptive way to understand the dynamic of idolatry in the heart. Moses further warns Israel about the sin of hypocrisy, like like some that were in that, that, that assembly, and along with the others, they were verbally, solemnly committing outwardly, joining in, declaring their commitment to be God's people and for God to be their God affirming their commitment to keep the covenant, to obey, while inwardly, the text tells us in verse 19, they were walking in stubbornness of my heart. Another very vivid 
and helpful picture of the sin of hypocrisy. What is on the outside is not what is on the inside. The outside, oh God, I commit to you as your covenant people. I swear my allegiance to you to keep your covenant stipulations. Inside, pride, stubbornness, rebellion. And the text tells us that hypocrisy is, is like wearing a mask, like the Greek thespians did, playing a part, acting. And th this person, according to Moses, these types of people feel safe. Yes, they're outwardly part of the community. They're, they're part of that, that solemn commitment. And they're focused on the outward form, and they feel safe. They presume upon God's favor, but they fail to understand that God looks more at the heart than he does our outward conformity. Moses further warns the bitter root of infectious idolatry must and will be purged. So to put it in our terms, the spread of idolatry will be mitigated, not by social distancing, but by judgment. The dry and the moist will be swept away. That's an idiom for judgment. Verses 21 through 28 describe God's judgment on unfaithful Israel. The same level of judgment, if not more, that Sodom and Gomorrah experienced. And he further goes on to, to speak about the likelihood, and we know that it's actually happened, of Israel being so idolatrous that God had to purge Israel literally from the land and send them into exile in another land. The point is, be warned. The infection of idolatry, the poison of idolatry, the spread of idolatry will be dealt with. There will be a purging. There will be judgment. And the hypocrite will find the severity of the curses for breaking the covenant. This warning points to the expectation of a future idolatry of Israel even leading to a future exile. It points to the fact that Israel will likely suffer the curses of breaking the covenant. For you and me, this serves as a warning as well. We must not allow the poisonous infection of sin to have its way with us. It must be purged. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. What does that mean? What it means is, of course, God circumcises the heart. God gives us a new heart. But we have a role to play as well. We are to circumcise our own hearts in that we cut out, we we deal with anything that hinders our love and commitment to God. We are alive in Christ Jesus. We are dead to being in bondage to sin, as Paul says in Romans 6. And because of that, because 
our hearts have been circumcised by the grace of God. We have been given a new heart. We are also to circumcise our hearts. That is, we are to cut out and flee from sin in our own lives. Look at verses 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. The proper response to God giving us a new heart, to uniting us to Christ, pouring out His saving grace upon us, is obedience. Is purging sin out of our life. Is circumcising the foreskins of our hearts. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. To make you obey its passions, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under sin. Likewise, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Apostle Paul says, This is who you are in Christ Jesus. And the implication is, so live like it. Listen to what he says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, let's get it straight. Next week, we'll talk about the need for restoration and forgiveness because even though we have a new heart, we still have the capacity to sin and we struggle with the remnants of the old nature. But the fact of the matter is this, Romans 6, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 We have a new life, and we are new creations in Christ. Live like it. We have the capacity to respond to God in obedience because He has given us a new life in Christ. He has given us a new heart. He has made us new. As we go back to Israel, are these words in 16 through 28 inevitable? Is this terrible outcome going to happen? So we look back on the Old Testament from a New Testament perspective, and, and, and we see that what Moses warned about actually came about. And so from our viewpoint, it was prophetic, but we need to put ourselves in the shoes of that new generation from the vantage point of their day. It was a warning But it was not to be taken as a prophecy. It was not inevitable. That's not, Moses is not saying this is inevitable. He is warning them that this is a likelihood. But obedience would result in blessing, not curse. Thus he goes to this verse 29 where he speaks about God's essential for his people. What is essential for us to know is not what God has decreed in the future, not if the this terrible outcome will actually come about. Moses' point is that this new generation was not to try to figure out the future, but they were to focus on what God had clearly revealed to them in their day that they would obey him as his covenant people. The third, the purpose of special revelation in this context is obedience. And so we've looked at the context of understanding verse 29, this solemn commitment that the people made, this terrible outcome that at least as we look at it from their day was a likelihood 
though not inevitable. And Moses is saying, don't be concerned with, is this going to happen or is it not going to happen? That's God's business. You be concerned with obeying God in the way he's told you to obey him. So Moses said in verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may do all the words of this law. God revealed his will to them that they would obey. And brothers and sisters, God has revealed his will to us that we might obey. My purpose is not to expound on the doctrine of Scripture, which is good to do and a blessing to do. It's an important study. But I just simply want to encourage us to give ourselves to what God has determined is essential for the well-being of our body and our soul. To keep doing what God has called us to do. And the sum total is he has revealed his will to us that we would obey it. Therefore, let us obey it. There are essential and non-essential businesses. But brothers and sisters, we are part of the essential business of God's revealed will and obeying it. And our business, the business that God has given to us, is not just for an immediate crisis. It is for every day. It is for all time. It echoes in eternity. God had revealed to them at that point in time the words of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. We could summarize the first five books of the Bible, the, the books that Moses authored, the Pentateuch. And yet, God has since then revealed his complete word to us, now totaling 66 books that form his special revelation that is the Bible. God has revealed exactly what he wants us to know about him and the duty that he requires of us. He has revealed everything for life and godliness in his word. And the scriptures are inspired. The scriptures are authoritative. The scriptures are sufficient. I've just chosen one verse to read, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It's at the top of your worship order. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What is essential for us to know? It's not what God has decreed for the future, but what he has revealed to us for our obedience today as his covenant people. Well, one problem arises. Isn't the Christian life more than simply trusting Jesus and obeying? What is essential for us to know is not what God has decreed for the future, but what he has revealed to us 
for our obedience today. I want to make a statement that I hope is not misunderstood. God is not mundane, but God is a God of the mundane. God is sovereign over the mundane. And we live in the mundane. And God calls his people to be faithful in the mundane affairs of life, to be faithful every day, all day. Michael Sharon manages a private investment fund, and he was asked by an interviewer what his criteria was for adding companies to his portfolio. And, of course, he responded with with what you would expect an investment fund manager to say. He, He looks for companies with strong balance sheets, a lot of cash on hand, and very low debt. He looks for companies that have strong leaders. He he calls them the the Mount Rushmore type leader. Not the flashy, charismatic leader, but just the good, solid leader. And there was a third criteria that when I heard him say this, it really got me to thinking. I had to review what he said once again. But this third criteria, surprisingly... He said the main thing that he looks for in determining is he going to add this company to his investment portfolio is the remarkable from the unremarkable. The remarkable from the unremarkable. So in his judgment, great companies, remarkable companies, are those who have not depended on some innovative, flashy, new, glitzy business strategy. It's not the company that has that just walk in a room and suck the air out of the room, charismatic leader. No, the the, the companies that that are remarkable companies are those that have an unremarkable history. And what he meant by that, these are companies that just simply know what their business is, they focus on their business, and they do it well. So he interviews these, these, CEO, these CEOs of these remarkable companies, and he says, how do you do it? And at first he was probably expecting some just revolutionary business concept. And they said, well... We hire good people, and we take care of our customers. And he said, that's boring. That is as mundane as it gets. That is unremarkable. But it produces remarkable results. There's a spiritual principle here as well. So many of us are trying to find some slick key to living the Christian life. Glitzy, innovative, compelling, charismatic. And God says, no unremarkable. Here's what you do. Do it. 
rely on me and do it. God is sovereign over the mundane, the unremarkable. He is a God who has revealed his will to his people that they might know what pleases him, that they might know what it means to obey. And actually, he gives them the ability to obey minute by minute, day by day, step by step in the mundane, everyday, common affairs of life. And he does something remarkable from the unremarkable. From the daily grind of obedience, he brings about a faithful people. I just want to encourage us to appreciate the distinction in our society today between the essential and non-essential. We appreciate those sectors of our society deemed essential. We need them. But let us not allow the essentials of this immediate crisis to squelch out of our lives what is eternally essential in God's perspective. And that is to be faithful in the mundane affairs of life. Rely on God, trust Him, and obey. And see what God, what remarkable things God brings out of the unremarkable. We should not be consumed with trying to figure out when is this pandemic going to end. We should be given to the revealed will of God, to rely on God, and to obey. Let's pray. God, our Father, we so thank you for your word. We so thank you that you have shown us what pleases you. You have shown us how to be saved. It's clear. And you have given us a heart of understanding by your grace. And so we ask you, O God, to be pleased to enable us to focus, to daily embrace your word revealed to us. Give us the grace to obey. And we rejoice even now the remarkable things that you will do in and through your people, your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.